Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, today I'm here with Maya Hampton. She's the product manager for the Cedar Design System over at REI. Uh, Maya, really glad to have you here. Thanks for agreeing to, to be on the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about what a product manager for a design system is kind of all about. Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually joined our design system team at REI right ahead of our release. So it was really to help drive adoption, help manage some communications, let stakeholders and potential users know what was coming and really start to build that awareness. And so, you know, adoption definitely took up a large part of the role. Um, really building relationships with other teams. And then now that's kind of segued into more of our, um, you know, roadmap planning, planning for release cycles, keeping communications going out around new work that's that we're developing, um, trying to get some insights back from our other internal partners about where we can help add value, where there's, you know, potential gaps in the system or or gaps in how we're, you know, delivering our brand expression. expression. So it is a lot of working with those external teams um, within REI to look for those partnership opportunities. That's awesome. So when you came in, Seer was still this nascent thing that had, you know, either just recently launched, it was about to launch. And a large part of your job as a, a you know, product manager was to try to to make sure that this was um, built in a way that would be adopted by the organization and really focus on making sure that it was the right system for the people that were ultimately consuming it. Yeah, exactly. And we actually had had a, a legacy system, so Cedar One, kind of our old school one, um, which was more of just a, a straight pattern library that had been integrated in the sites. And the team that had initially spun up to create that had kind of fallen back to just you know, one or two people trying to keep it going. So there were definitely some lessons learned about what hadn't worked when we sort of envisioned this new system that would be, you know, more robust, having those shared components with design and development, creating documentation to share that language. So yeah, really stepping in to figure out, you know, not only what have we learned from our previous experience with sort of a pattern library, but then also where are those other kind of pain points in our product development process that the design system may be able to help integrate. Gotcha. And have you guys always thought about your design system as a product or was that something that was kind of like new with your role? Because this is a this was a big thing like like, you know, a couple of years ago was like, is a design system a product? And and we've always taken the position very strongly, like, yes, it absolutely is. Um, but when you have somebody that has a, a product manager title associated with a design system, that's still a pretty new title. Like that doesn't that hadn't existed for all that long. And so Tell me a little bit about how the organization has thought about that design system. Yeah, that's a great point. So with the legacy system, I think one of those key learnings was that it was treated like a project. And then when the team kind of went away and moved on to other projects, there was no one really left to maintain it. There was no really sustainable you know, path forward to, to growing the system or, or making it better. So that was certainly a lesson that the org had kind of learned into like, yes, let's treat this like a product. Let's staff this. Let's expect to continue funding this, which you know, now that I've been working on it for a couple of years, I really see that benefit. Like it's it's not just the tool, it's really the team and being that bridge to other teams and finding those connections across other teams that there's so much value that comes from the work that it does. So there's definitely been a focus on, yes, let's treat this as a product. We want to have design and engineering equally represented, but we also want to 
keep the business in mind too. What, you know, what's coming up in our, our kind of larger organizational roadmaps that we can tie our efforts into to make sure that we're helping to deliver seamless experiences and also help with some of those efficiency challenges. So when you talk that way about the design system and how it sort of fits into the overall organizational strategy, a lot of that leads me to this this thought about like, you know, you're shaping the expression of the organization in, in its digital landscape. And, and then the organization is also shaping that design system. Talk to me about that interplay a little bit, because I think it's interesting to hear you say like the direction for the design system is sort of leading the product direction. And then likewise, you're incorporating a bunch of this sort of um, feedback, I guess, into the design system from those product teams. Yeah. And one of the key benefits that I really see with this design system team is kind of that opening up sort of those um, avenues for feedback and collaboration, even, you know, across, you know, designers that maybe work on different teams, but also with designers and developers that work on the same team by having, you know, sort of the shared language of UI components it helps us to just really improve those ideas of collaboration, building things that are you know more maintainable and not a one-off. I also see it as, and this is feedback we've heard from some of our, our um, design system consumers, is that it, it kind of empowers them to push back on you know maybe things that are coming through from product owners or business analysts or you know like oh we want to try this one-off special thing and and they, it gives them some leverage to push back and be like hey well. If we do that, we're going to be starting to break some of our consistency. It's also going to you know, become harder to maintain this over time as well. And so by creating the system around it and really advocating for that sort of reusable ecosystem of, of parts and, and processes, it does help you know, start to lead that change in the rest of the organization. And, and especially when we talk to some of those other teams that are less digital first, like marketing or brand. So how does that conversation get surfaced? Like, that's really unique, right? When you 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 have somebody that is coming in that is is potentially hired an outside contractor that is like, you know, this is the design pattern you should use for this particular controller, this particular feature, or like, what if we did something unique and interesting and different and went a totally different direction here? And that also ultimately gives that that individual product team or product owner that pushback chance. Like, what, what does that look like now? Because I, I am really curious about that interaction where you have somebody saying, like, I want to break a design pattern. And then you have the ability to say, like, if I break this design pattern, it breaks all of this other work that that went into to constructing a, a consistent experience. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so REI, we're a retail store. So we have these kind of in-person touch points. We have our digital channels. We have marketing. We have all these different channels. And so really this last year has highlighted the the importance of that consistency across all those different channels and creating that seamless journey for the customers who, you know, may come in from any of these different touch points, but still expect that same experience. And if it doesn't feel that way, it's off. So we're able to really align with some of the design and customer research teams that are focused on that seamless user experience and customer journey and kind of use that as one of our keys, I guess, to to help promoting that, you know, this is why the consistency matters. And, you know, by using the system, we can we can advocate for that. But at the same time, we're also trying to figure out even now how we can better support that idea of teams being able to, to build some experimental components or patterns that we can kind of test and learn into, knowing that the design system is intended to be a living system and intended to evolve. And we want to we want to learn what's working from those teams and build it back in the system. So that's a process we're trying to 
explore a little more deliberately now how we can create that room for experimentation, not be overly prescriptive, right. but at the same time, deliver that consistency to their end users. Yeah, and I'm sure that that's been no more um, <laughs> prescient than than with COVID. Um, like I'm sure like most retailers, you guys had to, to shut down in-store operations for some time. And so having like being thrust into to the main channel suddenly being digital, um, I'm sure that that was an adjustment you guys made over the past year as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely a huge uptick in, in digital traffic. Um, you know, we started doing a curbside pickup program, which was something that um, REI hadn't been doing before. So the design system certainly helped spin up some of those uh, pages and landing experiences easier. So that felt consistent uh, because that's a, a real challenge with some of these larger items we sell, like a kayak or a paddleboard or a bike. You know, you can't just get that shipped to your house. Right? right. There needs to be some sort of coming in person with bikes. We we do a lot of that assembly. If you buy a roof rack, we'll help put it on the car. So how can we still provide those services and still provide that kind of consistent, you know, expertise from our REI employees whilst keeping some distance, right? Um, or, or doing what we can online and making sure that messaging is really clear with some of these shipping restrictions. So for all those new digital experiences you guys had to create as as a way to, um, you know, absorb this rapid change that, that COVID, you know, thrust upon you. Uh, was the design system a huge asset for you and the ability to to do like things consistently and quickly as as a part of that a- adaptation? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, we've also been working on sort of moving our our backend infrastructure to more of a microsite service that our design system has really aligned with that work going forward. So once you're on that microsite, you get the design system, you get the front end build system. It's all built in and, and really easy to get that um, up to launch. So by creating sort of that architecture. That in itself made it easier to yes spin up a couple of new pages, um, not have to worry about the design of all these things to that last detail, get it out there quickly and be able to to get it in front of customers. So one other thing that is kind of interesting about the specifically the e-commerce side of things, right, is e-commerce is really notorious or or maybe infamous for uh, you know UX choices having meaningful dollars uh, added to or subtracted from a shopping cart. Um, you think about things like performance and how, you know, all the data about you know, save your customers 100 microseconds and you're going to get them to spend like 10% more money or, you know, the accessibility need about, you know, one in 10 people or one in, you know, eight people have an accessibility need for a website. If you cater to those people, those people will buy stuff from the sites that best represent accessibility. Has the design system helped you grapple with any of those UX choices that ultimately lead to really clear business ROI through a shopping cart? Yeah. And, you know, some of those, you know, this has kind of been a challenge and I'm sure you've heard this with other design systems as well is, is trying to track some sort of conversion rate metrics with, you know, a consistent UI or UX. Um, It's tricky to get that granular, but uh, site performance and accessibility are actually two areas that we, we focused on largely with the design system last year as an opportunity to do what we can within that system and centralize it out with, to other teams. So for example, with accessibility, we're, we're very conscious about taking on a lot of that research up front to make sure that our components meet those standards. We build in what we can, but then we also provide documentation for what that implementing team needs to do. So our image component has a field for alt text, but somebody still needs to go in and actually put the alt text in there. So, you know, really spelling out that relationship of, you know, we're doing as much as we can, but we're also hopefully making it easier for 
the teams implementing to figure out what to do as well and really make that easy choice. Similarly, with performance, we've been looking at a lot of ways that we can optimize our code, do some tree shaking to really only get those components and variants that need to be loaded to be loaded and really partnering with our other uh, front end platform teams that work closely on performance so we can have something measurable that we can track there that's tied in back into the system and, and sort of the larger libraries that are being loaded or not on every page. So one of the interesting things that you mentioned earlier was how you felt that like Cedar V1 and Cedar V2 went from being a pattern library to a design system. And that sort of sparked something for me in, in that like what we talk about very frequently in Knapsack is how like your component library is not your design system. Your design system is this collection of, of all these other things that are well beyond patterns or components. In that sort of, of transition, what in your mind really became the design system from that pattern library? If you had to talk about like the anatomy of what you've built within Cedar, what would that really look like? Yeah, well, I think one of the keys about design systems that's not always apparent as first when you're just building out those component libraries is really how they connect together and those interconnections, right? Like that's what really makes the system what it is. And, you know, the Lego building blocks are like the most famous example of, you know, components for a design system. But what's really so fascinating about the Lego system are the little, you know, the tubes and the stubs that connect those pieces together. And mm -hmm. so a part that was made in the 1950s still fits with a part that was produced today. And so really looking at those interconnections between how different sections of a page, how a different microsite shares a component with another part of the site. So it's consistent to that end user. The awesome thing about that is when you think about like, you know, a block from the 50s fitting in with a block that's built today, this idea of these interconnected bits when you think about something like like your microsite platform that you were talking about, right? That's starting to move beyond the idea of a component and more into the idea of a pattern. And that that microsite has layout, it has, you know, token sets, it has all these other things that that ultimately represent a microsite pattern for you. And sure, there's a lot of variations of the pattern, much like there's a lot of variations of a card component or something like that. But the important thing is, is that that's stitched together to represent some unit of value because we're not consuming components in isolation. Like no user is just viewing a card pattern. And so I love the idea of going from this, this pattern library to actually like patterns and practice for implementation. Yeah, and I, I will say that one of the sort of other initiatives of having a design system has kind of spurred this desire for consistency and other things. So for instance, in our front end framework and tying that back to our microsites, with this rollout, we've been able to really advocate for Vue as the JavaScript framework. Previously, we had, it was kind of the Wild West, pick whatever you want. So there was a lot of inconsistency there. And that was a big pain point for developers that we worked with because it was really challenging to move from team to team. When people, new people onboarded, they may not have any sort of documentation or kind of clue what was going on. So, so driving for other standards like, you know, a shared JavaScript framework, um, consistent website that people go to, tying it back to the designers, a shared library that they can pull from as well, it does start to promote this idea of you know, what other parts of our process can we standardize a bit so we get that efficiency gain. Server-side rendering was um, a big challenge at one point. And it was like, hey, we similar to the design system, we have every team trying to solve this for themselves. Could we make one solution for that, tie it into our microsite platform, and then 
it starts to all just be bundled together and you get to, to really take advantage of the work and best practices that other teams are building. Yeah, coming from the the world of PHP and server-side rendering, I totally empathize with that challenge. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting too to kind of see how when you think about things as patterns instead of just as simple components or a pattern library, you start to incorporate lots of other disciplines into that as well. You start to think about like, you know, UI, content, design, and that becomes this this collective intelligence about about what represents something to a user instead of what is just that thing in isolation. And, and don't get me wrong, that thing in isolation is very important. But ultimately, like what people are consuming and what you're constructing includes multiple disciplines and it includes multiple aspects of that pattern. I'm really curious how you think about that, you know, uh, overall system and that systems based approach those different disciplines and those different patterns and how you think about the construction of that specifically with something like the Microsoft generator, because I think this is a really good microcosm for, you know, how the systems like this actually get implemented. You're using your design system to construct like an end experience for users. And that's consistent between different apps and different parts of the business. Like, you know, multiple microsites get launched on this sort of thing. Right. And so when you look at those, that is a multidisciplinary, multifaceted implementation of a design system. And so when you look at that implementation of that design system, that goes far beyond like a component in isolation. So how do you go from a bunch of components that are like, sure, well-documented, have designs, have code, to actually the implementation of that thing as a pattern? Yeah, I got you. And so a big key to this, and I think where the PM role especially comes in helpful is it's a lot of those relationships and connections and having those conversations with all the different disciplines that you know may affect a pattern. So for example, we're we're diving more into patterns now as well. And one of the ones we're looking at is messaging. And messaging, once you start to unpack it, becomes really complex. And you know, there's kind of this larger category of communication. And we want to, you know, be able to recommend when you're using, you know, a tooltip versus a modal window. But you can only go so far without starting to talk to the copywriters out there because they have an opinion about messaging. And then mm-hmm. if you pull in, you know, somebody like marketing or sort of these campaigns, well, they have a specific hierarchy of messaging that they want to see on the site, too. So there's not decisions that we can, to your point, make alone in isolation. They really do need to to start to bridge out to these other teams and figure out, you know, what what do they need? What's flexible and what's not flexible? How can we kind of work together to deliver something that that still feels consistent um, and provides that, you know, best usability and readability and all that good stuff to our end users? Yeah. So like, let's dive a little bit deeper there, because I think that this is an interesting concept. When you think about a pattern like messaging, how do you guys think about that? Because that's it feels really broad when you just say messaging. Right. So what does an implementation of messaging really mean? Well, like many design system conversations, uh, that tends to get pretty philosophical on our team. We definitely go between, you know, the the philosophy of exactly what are communications to sort of that tactical, how do we get it out there? And when we look at patterns, even patterns is a word that we've been trying to unpack a lot because, you know, we have some history with a pattern library. We tried to kind of separate ourselves from Mm -hmm. that. And now we want to reintroduce that. But, you know, largely if we're thinking of patterns more as, So the component is like the specific thing that's built, right? But the pattern is more abstract and it's more guidance and could be, you know, potentially applicable in a variety of different contexts. So Mm -hmm. there's some flexibility inherent in that pattern. I I love the the strict definition of a pattern for us has been, 
you know, a solution to a commonly recurring problem. And that's like as far as we go with that in terms of, of defining pattern inside of our app or inside of our company, because we want to basically think about patterns as this like broadly applicable philosophical concept where like you're solving a problem with a pattern. Um, and that pattern solves that problem repeatedly in all use cases across any parts of, of a context or, or whatever. Yeah. And I even, so I checked out, you know, Christopher Alexander's pattern language, tried to dive into that a little bit. Maybe some of the cliff notes helped me understand it a bit more. Yeah. But, it's a, it's a heavy you know, read. <laughs> it's, it's pretty heavy for sure. Um, but at a high level, you know, I think I, I understand enough about, you know, he's, he's talking about this patterns within the realm of architecture. So you're building a kitchen and, you know, depending on where you're building that kitchen, where there's light, where there's plumbing, it's going to look different, but it's going to have a lot of those same components, right? There's going to be a sink, there's going to be a fridge, some counter space, sort of those basic components that would make up what, a ki- what we see as a kitchen, but with room for flexibility in terms of the specific context that that kitchen is being built. And then on top of that, there's even kind of, you know, maybe it's a craftsman style house. And mm-hmm. so, it has sort of a, a visual difference, but you still know it's a kitchen if it's different than, you know, another kind of brick or Tudor style house. Not so good on my architecture, but <laughs> kind of leading with that, you know, there's the styles are different, but you know, it's a kitchen, right? There's that shared pattern that's, again, solving a specific user task or something people are trying to do, cook food. Yeah. And so your your design tokens become like what your color of cabinets are or what your countertops are made of or, or those sorts of things. But overall... Those patterns are about solving that need for the ability to cook food in a space. And I think the the really good analog there in time in terms of the web is, you know, a pattern solves a problem for a user like checkout or login or product catalog or any of those other things. I, I, like the wonderful thing about e-commerce is that these things are very distinct um, and, and well represented and well understood just largely because of the, the tie in to like dollars through a shopping cart. But the patterns for them, I don't think are are particularly well established in industry. Like it's rare to see a team organize around a catalog pattern, for example, and like have a product owner for a catalog and to have that catalog show up across or between multiple products. Is that what you guys are driving at with your pattern concept or is it different than that? Um, I think eventually like there's there's levels to this, right? Like, you know, patterns can be in all sorts of shapes and sizes, um, but forms, you know, that you're kind of speaking about is has been the other kind of the first pattern along with messaging that we've really been trying to dive into because, you know, that is the most common interaction on most websites. It's essential to things like login and checkout. So, you know, working with those teams, you know, there's teams that work on checkout and customer accounts and login and, and all of that. So potentially working with them on sort of those larger patterns, but we're starting with like mm-hmm. input patterns. So Really, what are those best UX practices and implementation notes for putting together an address field and, you know, not auto-correcting the city? Um, Credit card field, having some indication of the type of credit card, like a little icon. So it shows some some quick validation that, you know, this is a, a valid credit card number. And, you know the expiration date, making sure that matches what's on your card. So people don't mess that up. Like there's, there's kind of little things at that that seem very granular, but if we're, we're kind of starting on that level of really understanding these input types as they apply to specific, you know, user tasks or things that people are trying to do, really diving deep into the best practices, best accessibility practices around those as well. 
And then our hope is that if we can document that, then we can share that back out with more teams. And, and potentially we could get, you know, larger to that full checkout flow, but that may belong more with the checkout team since mm-hmm. they're really owning that until we, we're looking across platforms, which is... No, I mean, it, it feels granular, but I, like when you think about the number of places that people enter a credit card in the REI app ecosystem, I'm sure it's in the dozens. And so when you think about how that applies horizontally across an organization, now all of a sudden that single piece of innovation in you know having quick validation around a credit card provides user value at dozens of touch points for a customer across your, your ecosystem. And so I, I think that like... Input fields are interesting, right? Because forms are hard. They're super complicated. Almost every single major enterprise in the world has a difficult time managing them across their their product ecosystem. And oftentimes they're like defined by third parties, right? And so how you think about like input is an interesting idea of a pattern at like a foundational level, right? Where you start to think in the, the design systems parlance of like, what are my foundations? And then when I think about the implementation, like checkout, maybe an implementation that combines stuff from input, combines stuff from product cards, combines stuff from all these other different, more foundational elements. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, again, with the patterns, it can go so many different ways because at some point, you know, it feels foundational, but then it's really kind of taking that next level about how, you know, sort of these more atomic components can start to be placed together and you know, provide that, you know, best practice so you can tab through it and you can, you know, go to a checkout on our, when you're signing up for a class or event with REI and that feels the same too. And you still feel like you're with the same company and you're, you know, it's still. And it's doing like all the right stuff also. Like it's, it's performance in that, like, it's not making a bunch of like, you know, weird third party calls in your input field. It's like, you know, doing all the things that it needs to do in terms of accessibility, like you mentioned. And it's an interesting way of thinking about this, right? Because I think the industry is still trying to settle on what this pattern concept really is all about because there are these foundational things and there's the implementations of these foundational things, which them themselves are also patterns. And you end up with this like like weird sense of meta associated with it all about like, like you know, where does the slippery slope of, of meta get to? I mean, in, in, in this example of this, try being a company that provides design systems platforms that has their own design system. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's getting really meta, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that the wonderful thing about these kinds of conversations is we get to kind of start to, to think about, like, where do we draw some some boundaries in in this pattern concept around what we want to think about at the design system level versus what is at that more product implementation level. Um, and for me, it's always been about, you know, what are the things that are are commonly structured across all of my applications? So what are those recurring problems? And a recurring problem like messaging or input seems to be a lot more valuable across products than something like um, checkout right? Because checkout is only going to be specific to that that particular checkout, maybe in multiple applications, but that feels like a lot more implementation specific. And I'm curious, like in your mind, where do you think about those lines within Cedar? Do you think about it's the design system team's responsibility to define at a very specific implementation level what like a product card looks like? Or do you try to keep it at that upper level, that, that more abstract concept of messaging? 
Yeah, I would say that's just an ongoing balancing conversation to try to figure out that it's kind of that, you know, how flexible versus how prescriptive do we want to be? And, and generally, it seems like design systems add the most value when they're they're not overly prescriptive, right? They allow some flexibility. So, you know, if you have light coming in through your kitchen this way, you could position it this different way, like leaving room for the teams to adapt to their context. But then there's also things that we are sticklers about, you know, like the brand and typography and some of those really foundational styles that needs to, to come through. I think when we have research or you know, accessibility requirements or even performance built in about what to use when, then that starts to give us some of that credibility to kind of go forward and really push back on those decisions, but not becoming the police, right? The design police that you can't do this and that, making it more of a feel more like a community and a, a collaboration. So we're not putting things out there that people aren't going to use. And at the same time, they're able to tell us like, hey, you know, it would save me a long time if I didn't have to figure out the spacing around all these different input fields in a form every time that I'm putting a new mock-up together or something like that. Like, what are those problems that we can solve that can be reused across multiple teams? And then what's specific to just this team? And maybe that's where they have room to to experiment with it. They have room to kind of build their own compositions, which is kind of what we think of as that next level up from components. When you start composing different components together, mm-hmm. you create that composition. So another kind of you know, language normalization we're trying to get out there. Yeah, I w- so I want to come back to the naming things here in a second. But one of the things that I've I've always really liked, um, you know, my co-founder, Evan, he uh, uh, was the first person, I think, to tell me the phrase, unopinionated tools with opinionated implementations. And I think that a big part of a design system is creating that unopinionated tool that can then have an opinionated implementation by somebody downstream. Um, and I would maybe I would maybe change the word tool for infrastructure because I think that a lot of what we're doing with design systems is infrastructure. But I mean, what do you think? Do you think that that, that encapsulates what you're trying to build? Yeah, I think so. And I we don't put it so eloquently, but we talk about how like our components are dumb. Like they don't know about the business logic about how many cards should show up on this page. We, exactly. It, it gives you the container that you can build a card in, right? So I think we've definitely skewed more towards that. Our, our components are really the simple, those UI elements, and especially those touch points like primary action, call to action buttons, where there's a real value in having that consistency. But then, yeah, teams really owning that implementation, working with them, though, so that we do have this kind of feeling of community and they can certainly reach out to us and kind of consult with, hey, does this kind of fit what you're thinking? A lot of times that leads to conversations where we're like, actually, we just saw this other team over here trying to solve that in a kind of similar way. So, like, let's all get together and talk about this and come up with the way forward together. Yeah, that's a really cool approach to democratization. And um you know, it's one of the things that I think I like most about implementations of design systems that are are relatively mature is you start to see this collaborative atmosphere percolate through an organization where people that are having like innovation in one area are very eager to share that innovation with everybody in the group because it's actually possible to take advantage of that via a systems-based approach to to building products. And it's awesome to hear like examples of that in a practice space where it's not like some giant handoff meeting or creative review that takes like two hours and everybody's kind of miserable in. It's much more of a, like a individual contributor surfacing something that they did that was interesting. And then a design system team providing a lot of that like interpersonal glue in the organization to bring those people together at the right moment. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And that's where, you know, I know this is 
run differently in a lot of the different design systems. So I think it also kind of depends on the culture and the you know scale of how many teams you're trying to support. In some cases, you may need to be a little more heavy handed with like, hey, we're rolling out this new brand typography and we need everyone to you know make time to do that this quarter so it goes out consistently. Um, so there's there's definitely some space for that, but not wanting to overburden teams with that as well so we can kind of keep that good working relationship. And when we do you know collaborate or get a contribution from one of those teams, they're so much more likely to do it again and, and mm-hmm. to help us learn from that and then to like advocate to other teams as well when they see that. So it's really kind of getting that knowledge out of just the design system team. Yeah, and you kind of build yourself your own like mini flywheel in product, right? Like the the idea that like once you get that spinning and people are eager, eager to share, eager, eager, <laughs> eager to share, eager to, to kind of show people what they've built, um, that leads to these flywheel effects of innovation inside a product. Totally. And that, you know, we were talking about kind of those mature design systems and where do you go after after building those core component libraries. And that's kind of the vision that we're seeing now for Cedar is like, how can we make this more of a collaborative system that, you know, different people can use and contribute to. Maybe we have some sort of rotation onto working with the team. So people have that firsthand experience. Maybe they're working on a contribution and we partner with them really closely on that so that they kind of get that value of the systematic thinking and approach and and kind of also understand and respect the whole process that we go through because it takes us longer to get things out of the door when we're trying to solve for every use case and really do our due diligence around, you know, best practices and accessibility versus just, you know, making a component or like a date picker or something for one specific use case for one specific product. Right. And the idea is, is that if you build it right that one time, then the value is multiplied across every implementation of it. And like the design system math here is really funny, right? Because if you think like taking really simple numbers, like, all right, it takes me 10 hours to implement something. And it would take me a hundred hours to build an abstract implementation that is unopinionated, doesn't care about its context is, is, you know, dumb, as you say, um, that then can be implemented in one hour in, in any given place. So like I have that 90% savings on my time, but I have to go through at least 10 or so implementations of it for it to actually like pay off for me. And that's an interesting like bit of math that people aren't very specific about when they're designing design systems, but is ultimately how that abstraction, that force multiplier works in this, this like kind of network effect uh, within an organization. Do you guys do any of that math? I'm actually like really curious about this because I've only ever seen the math done like a handful of times. And I'd love to know if, if there's some sort of like log of like hours saved somewhere in the REI database. Um, well, I think like a lot of other people were trying to do that. Uh, we've had some success and I think we're, we're getting a bit better at it. We've had challenges around like specifically tracking time, partially because we didn't get a great like before. So we don't have a great baseline of how long it took. And then as people started to use the system, those, you know, it becomes this perceived efficiency gains where that now they're used to it. So it's harder to, to break that apart from, okay, well, if you didn't have the system, how long would that take? So yeah, we do have some some simple math about, you know, if it takes us 10 hours to build a button and, you know, that's used 100 times, then we're freeing up, you know, X amount of time mm-hmm. and money that could be sent to create that button. Um, so there's kind of more of that theoretical. We've been tracking now on the measurement side, trying to figure out 
more, get more visibility into where the components are being used. So which of those components um, are being used both in Figma, but then directly, you know, by querying our Bitbucket repos to see like what's actually out there in code, seeing where those, um, especially where things are, uh, variants are being used so we can better understand that. Uh, the next thing I'm trying to do here is then to connect that to the traffic that comes into the REI website, because we have pretty good coverage across different, you know, microsites, but then that's not everything that's on REI.com, but it's the majority of the traffic that comes through. So having that as kind of another lens to, to get an idea of how many of our end users that go to RA.com or our mobile apps, how many of them are actually seeing and interacting with a component from Cedar, which may be able to get to some other extrapolation of, you know, user consistency equating to some sort of dollars. Um, yeah. And, and so it's, it's really interesting because like, like I think of those two things as like audit, right? So I want to know where my components are being used and what are those variations of things. And then tying that then to user behavior is, is like true analytics for a design system, right? Because like, so what Figma built is great with understanding like, hey, you know, here's how my design system usage is happening, but that's not user land. And, th and that's the holy grail, right? Is how do I tie how my design system functions to how actually user behavior has changed? And right now doing that without creating a massive performance burden on your website is like actually a really hard problem. There has to be sort of this like dividing line where there's this integration work that I haven't seen yet, but I want to build that is there that understands like user behavior and how that ties to design system variants. Um, and I think that that would be really powerful data to capture inside of, of an organization, because then you could understand based on very fine grained UX choices, how that ultimately affects how users use your site. Yeah, I think that would be amazing. I feel like that is a gap in kind of the skills and, and what we've set up with the design system today is to be able to, to get to that information. And I think that's really important because the value of design systems goes so far beyond just those efficiency gains, right? So even if we do some numbers, even if we get some time tracking around that, it's not telling the full story about, you know, how having that consistency, you know, affects end user behavior, but also even our internal teams, how it affects their behavior and, you know, potential to collaborate by having this kind of shared language and system and single source of truth for, for documentation about that. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> it's such an interesting topic. So I think that on the analytics front, there's almost kind of three things, right? There's this idea of how's my team functioning? What are the people downstream from the design system doing with my design system? What are the, the designers and the folks upstream doing, which like, you know, that is either in design app analytics or, or based on some sort of input in the design system. And then there's like one more meta level down, <laughs> which is like, what are the users doing? And I think that, that the complete solution looks at all of those things. It looks at like what's upstream, what's downstream, and what's way downstream and tries to paint a really amazing picture of what's working from a UX standpoint. And like, do we end up then in this place where we have a much better understanding about how the design choices that we're making ultimately impact the use of the system? I hope so. Yeah, I would hope so too. And, and that's where I think the designs, like the fact that it's a system, it starts to provide some of that infrastructure to to get things out there to test to see what works, but also, you know, when it does work, to to share that back out with with everyone else. Um, and that's you know both for the end users that actually interact with that, but also for how our 
you know, designers and developers work together. Um, so one thing on naming real quick, because you, you brought this up a minute ago. When you think about naming, like we talk about this all the time, right? Like how hard naming is and especially how hard naming is in a system. When you guys think about the naming of your patterns specifically and you look at words like messaging and you look at words like input, where does that really drive from? Is that is are you trying to derive it like that that most abstract level or is that just something that you've kind of like settled on collectively inside your organization? Like where do those names come from? Well, we certainly haven't settled on them. So I think that's part of the challenge right now, honestly, is trying to figure out how we can, you know, find a word to really capture everything that we're talking about. But it is kind of from that, what is a user trying to do or what's the specific problem that a designer is trying to solve? So messaging may actually be, you know, more of this communications category. And then the patterns might actually be, you know, alerts and validation and notification that are actually part of how we want to communicate to that. But it's not something that we've really landed on. And I think that's one of the other benefits I've seen to the design system is, putting in that thought, putting, you know, testing it out with different teams, seeing, seeing what sticks and what people will react to, but also trying to keep it, you know, abstract enough. So it's not overly prescriptive as we were talking about before. Um, So, so naming is really a challenge and especially trying to think of consistent naming across other potential patterns we may pick up in the future. So we're looking at kind of like, what are the different actionable elements? Should there be kind of like a interactions pattern, mm-hmm. if you will, um, or how how meta do we want to get with it versus high level. So this is where a lot of those philosophy conversations come back in and, and you know, kind of all that swirl around naming. Um, I don't know that we've really solved it, but, you know, talking talking through it honestly does introduce a lot of those good questions and also potential gaps with the system too and where we could go to help fill some of those in. Yeah, I think it's impossible to to solve the specific without getting into that like more philosophical abstract piece. And I think it's honestly kind of healthy. Like, well, you know, there is a little bit of navel gazing that happens at that more philosophical level. Like, I think it helps solidify a team's thinking around what the use or purpose of a system really is. Yeah. And it's kind of that, like, go slow to go fast. Like, ultimately, you know, we want to improve speed to market, you know, have these decisions out there so people can build on them without having to, to think through it all each time. So it's being sort of intentional and deliberate upfront with how we're making those decisions putting that time in to really think about it, taking that time, and then outputting something that hopefully will continue to provide guidance like at a higher scale. You know, we sometimes throw in like a personal anecdote or something like that. Is there anything that you want to talk about in your personal life and how patterns apply to to that? Like you're obviously a nature lover. Um, You work at REI. That could work. Funny you should mention. Um, Yeah, that was one I had been thinking about. So Now that it's spring, finally here, I've been spending a lot more time outside and spending a lot of time out in the garden, pruning, kind of trimming things down to get ready for the growing season. And that's something that does just continue to fascinate me are those those sort of natural patterns. You know, when you trim something down, you can go all the way down, like practically to the foundation of it. And you know, it's going to grow back and it's going to grow back. And each, you know, branch is going to have two branches and it's going to branch off two ways. And it's just kind of these infinite patterns as well. And they're not exactly the same, but they're following that kind of consistent just growth pattern, I suppose. Um, but once you start noticing those outside, yeah, you just see them everywhere and sort of in trees and how things grow and bloom. That's awesome. I also am a bit of a gardener. I I love spending time in the yard. It has been funny, like taking 
you know, this, this like very systems based tack in my professional life and how it definitely bleeds into the way I think about like pruning and planting and all those other things like that. I think maybe we should ditch the Lego analogy for a, a more plant based one. Yeah, plants always work. And our design system is cedar, right? Named after a tree. So maybe my head is in that a little, a little too much. But you know, it's also the, the other analogy that I like to, to think about is when we're talking about components, if we're only thinking about components, we're losing the forest for the trees, right? It's not just the trees out there. It's the whole forest and how they work together and how trees communicate with each other with root systems and all these different things that go into that. So I always like to throw that one out there too. That's great. Well, Maya, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for lending your voice and uh, your expertise to this. Uh, Really appreciate you being on the show. And can't wait to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Chris. This has been a great conversation. That's all for today. This has been another episode of the Design Systems Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like to know more about, find us on Twitter at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you with show ideas, recommendations, questions, or comments. As always, this pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud. Have a great day.